welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. Thank you for listening in, and thank you for all of your feedback and support so far. This week, we have an interview with David Milkey. David is a psychology graduate and teacher in a California high school who has become increasingly concerned about the number of children that he teaches that have a psychiatric diagnosis and how many are on psychiatric drugs. In this interview, we discuss David's experiences as an educator and how teachers can empower students to have more confidence in themselves. David, thank you so much for talking with me today for the podcast. I wanted to start by asking about you and what led to your interest in psychology and then on to teaching. Well, yes. Well, James, first, let me thank you for inviting me. Um, I think the work you're doing uh, is extremely important, and I feel very privileged uh, to be a part of it today. Uh, But my background, uh, I'm from Buffalo, New York, middle-class family, uh, but a family of helpers. My father was a Presbyterian minister. My mother, before she stopped work uh, to raise four kids, was a school psychologist. And so it was part of our family culture, not only to find work as adults that was meaningful, but to find work where we were helping others. And so I think it was either in the family culture or in the DNA that I was going to end up doing something in that arena. And so when I went to college, I majored in psychology, but I'd always really been interested in kids. So at the same time, I prepared uh, for a teaching career. And then shortly after college, I had, I don't want to say it's a life-changing experience, but um, a very powerful experience that helped start me thinking about how we help people in distress. And I was working for the New York State Research Institute on Alcoholism. I was part of an outcome study on treatment, and the group of patients that I was assigned to follow, uh, they were housed in a wing of a psychiatric hospital. And as a new psych grad, I thought, well, let me see what I can learn about inpatient treatment here, you know, while I'm in this setting. And I found out that they did shock therapy. And so I asked if I could observe, and they said, sure. You know, we do a Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. or whatever it was. Uh, And James, the experience was so powerful that I still remember to this day the weather of that morning. It was gray and cold and kind of late November and windy uh, and early in the morning. And I got to the hospital and they said, well, we do the treatment in the basement. So go down to the basement and uh, there are about seven or eight beds with patients lined up, sort of an assembly line in their pajamas, and the psychiatrist then shows up. He's got a little cart, and honestly, to me, it looked like a car battery Mm -hmm. uh, with jumper cables. And he comes up to the first patient, puts the uh, cables on either side of the patient's head, turns on the juice, and the patient starts to have a seizure. And I'm not sure what I was expecting because I knew that this is how shock therapy looks. Uh, but I was stunned. And then to see how long the seizure went on, I think 30 to 60 seconds, somewhere in there was the norm and maybe still is the norm. And then he wheeled his cart down to the next person and did it again, and then wheeled it down to the next person and did it again. And right about now, the third or fourth person, uh, I realized I was going to faint and I've never fainted. Uh, before, never fainted since, uh, but I got lightheaded, my skin was clammy, and I realized pretty quickly that my body was saying to me, get the hell out of here. Uh, and I listened to my body. Uh, I got out of there, went out in the hallway, sat down, put my head between my knees, took some deep breaths, and tried to make sense out of what I'd seen because I'd just graduated from college. I majored in psychology. We studied Jung and Freud and Skinner and R.D. Lang even came and spoke in one of my classes. And so, so excited about the field. And then I see this kind of treatment. And then I recovered to the point where I could go to the recovery room. Uh, and that was really almost as distressing because the people were milling about aimlessly 
one woman I remember very clearly just sort of sitting in the corner crying and another woman sort of just staring off vacantly into space. Uh, and there was no one in there that I can recall holding their hands, uh, getting them a glass of water. They were just there alone uh, in their distress and confusion. And so that experience really prompted me to, uh, I mean, among other things, to go back to school, graduate school in psychology and find out what are we doing? I mean, what do we know about how to help people? What do we not know? And and are there better ways to help people uh, in distress than this? Well, David, what you described sounds almost dissonant. It sounds like your experiences learning about psychology must have really clashed with seeing how agricultural some of our response to distress can be. Yeah, it really was a clash. And the um, just the yes, the, the idea behind the field is that you help people, right? Mm. Uh, and clearly... It didn't look as if this treatment could be helpful at all. And, and really my inclination while I was in the recovery room was to go talk to these people. But I was there as an observer, I, uh, and so I, I stayed in that role. Um, but as I say, it really prompted me to want to learn more what works, what doesn't work, what's helpful, uh, and what's harmful. So then you went on to study psychology in a postgraduate setting, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I uh, got a master's degree uh, at uh, California State University, Los Angeles, and then, and then I was in a doctoral program at the California Graduate Institute uh, in Los Angeles, which is really kind of an interesting school. It's a private school and uh, really with a psychoanalytic mm, focus. Um, and I did all the coursework, and I took the exams, and then, of course, it got down to writing the dissertation, and by then I had a family, and um, and so then I stopped at that point. But the experience really, uh, seeing the electroshock, uh, that really was, was powerful uh, and prompted me, as I said, to continue on. And what was it then that led you to gravitate towards teaching? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was a uh, <clears throat> always interested in theater, and so when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, my career goal was uh, acting. And so, actors in New York or Los Angeles or London, I'm sure, wait tables, right, and uh, drive cabs. And uh, but I had a teaching credential, and so I worked for, I think, seven or eight years uh, as a substitute teacher. Uh, while I was pursuing the acting career. Mm. Uh, and so really it started off as, I always liked kids, but it, it was a way to support the acting habit. Um, and then, you know, at, at some point, the handwriting becomes clear on the wall that you're not going to be the next um, Robert De Niro. Uh, and uh, I realized that I thoroughly enjoyed my time with the kids. And then there was an opening uh, for a full-time teaching job at our district's alternative school. And in California, uh, every school district uh, needs to have an alternative setting uh, for high school kids uh, who have not done well in the traditional setting. We call them in California continuation high schools. And so I was hired uh, full-time uh, at a continuation high school. And I worked there for about 20 years. And James, the kids there... Um, they had had a hard life and uh, struggled in school, uh, problems at home. And what we did was we provided a loving, caring environment to nurture them. And never for a minute uh, did we think that there was anything wrong with their brains that was preventing them from learning. Mm -hmm. We just knew intuitively uh, there were things going on in their lives uh, that uh, were interfering. And you know how schools have open house and parents come in and we had a hundred kids and we would, you know, see two or three parents. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty clear early on that what was preventing these kids from being successful were issues at home, uh, alcoholic parents, uh, unsafe neighborhoods with gang activity, abuse, neglect, the whole gamut. And interestingly enough, California for a time had provided funds so that teachers could go to the homes 
uh, and make contact for families that wouldn't come into the schools for back to school night and open house. And so when you would visit some of these homes, it was very clear that uh, these kids were dealing with a very difficult environment. Uh, And then what was very rewarding was to see how much they flourished uh, in a caring, loving, nurturing environment. And here's a, a story I think that exemplifies that. We had one November as we were getting towards the Thanksgiving holiday here in America, the teachers and staff were contemplating and sharing ideas about what we were going to do at home with our families for Thanksgiving. And then it dawned on us, you know, that our students uh, were not looking forward to that kind of uh, special day, uh, sitting around uh, having a nice Thanksgiving dinner with a loving family. And so what we did was the day before our Thanksgiving break, uh, we planned a Thanksgiving dinner at school. And some of the teachers cooked turkeys and others said, well, I'll make the mashed potatoes. And I'm sure I volunteered to bring the silverware and uh, and the drinks. Um, uh, And then that morning, all of us, the kids and the staff and the teachers, we set the table, served the food, shared the meal, and cleaned up together. And, uh, you know, it, it was a family. And you realize this is how people uh, in need can be reached mm-hmm. with uh, love and support. And so then if you fast forward to where we are today, I mean, I know schools like that still exist. I now teach at the traditional high school, and uh, we don't really talk in the same language, do we, about kids being... Uh, uh, troubled or difficult we, uh, or in need, uh, they come with a, a psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, and then, of course, once you have diagnosis, then you have the medication. So it's a really very, very different world uh, from where I was uh, 25 years ago uh, to where we are now. And, of course, I, I still believe that the way to reach kids now is through love and support. Uh, But it's very interesting to see how many of my kids uh, have internalized these labels, these diagnostic labels. Kids will speak like this, that I have ADHD. I have a bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. I am uh, a victim of an anxiety disorder. I mean, they have internalized these diagnoses. And uh, one of the things that, that I see a lot is that they see these as permanent conditions. Uh, and back in my previous life at the alternative school, uh, we really saw kids going through really episodic uh, periods of stress. And and the idea was that, uh, and we shared with them, you know, you'll get through all this and, and, and things will get better. And I think where we are now with the diagnostic labels uh, and the medication, I think that kids see... Uh, these as permanent conditions. And just sort of uh, uh, anecdotally, as I see kids now in class who I know are on medication uh, and are trying to make sense out of the confusion of their lives, Mm. that I think it's really harder for them to make sense of things uh, when they're on drugs uh, than if they were clear-headed. Which kind of leads me back to my training as a psychologist uh, back in the 70s and early 80s. Kind of the rule of thumb was, well, you really can't do insight-oriented therapy with people who are on drugs. Mm -hmm. And so the thinking was people need to be free of drugs so that they can feel uh, what they're feeling. uh, And then also be clear-headed as we try to make sense out of the challenges uh, Uh, that they're facing. Absolutely. And while you were talking, David, I was thinking about your wonderful interview with Dr. Peter Bregin. And you related an experience where a student in your class said, I can't do the homework that you set because I have a particular diagnosis. And that anecdote captured so well the fact that the diagnosis was a limiting thing for her and how she felt different because of it. And that brought home to me how impactful a diagnosis and subsequent medication can be on a young person's life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, This was a an interesting situation in that uh, she had been given uh, the diagnosis that uh, many kids have uh, ADHD. I think the statistics for is one in 20 kids are taking stimulant drugs for attention. Hmm. And the uh, funny thing for me, of course, is that the, the disease hadn't been invented while I was in school. So 
I'm going through college. I'm going through graduate school. And then it was really after that, kind of mid-80s, I think, where we started inventing these disorders uh, to describe behavior that teachers uh, don't like. Mm. And so I'm teaching, and, and my colleagues are saying, well, so-and-so can't concentrate. They have ADD. So-and-so can't concentrate. And so I, I didn't even know what they were talking about. And I thought, well, gee, I'm pretty well educated here in this field. But, but the diseases were invented after I was done. So I did some research. And it just became very clear to me that this particular uh, diagnosis uh, just describes uh, behavior uh, that teachers don't like. Mm. I mean, if we think about attention, I think our brain is designed to pay attention to things that we see uh, as interesting uh, and important and to ignore things that are not so interesting uh, and important. And if we think about school uh, for kids, most of it's not interesting and much of it they see as not important. Uh, so if I'm a 14-year-old boy and I'm uh, sitting in a geometry class, it's probably not interesting. Hmm. And I'm probably... Well, as a matter of fact, when I was that 14-year-old boy in the geometry class, it wasn't interesting. And my brain, I'm sure, said to me, this isn't really all that important. You're probably never going to use this. So my mind wandered. How am I going to get to know this girl on the other side of the classroom? Uh, and my attention wavered. But if you're in a class where something is interesting and important, um, I taught health for a while, and we were teaching safe sex. James, no one had a problem with attention. Everyone paid very close attention. Can I do this? And is this safe? Uh, but can I do that? Uh, they were interested in sexual relationships, of course, and also interested in staying alive. And so it was very clear to me that we, we pay attention to what's important or, or interesting. And I had a, uh, speaking of safe sex, uh, uh, during the early years of uh, the HIV epidemic, our school system sent a number of us for uh, training in uh, teaching HIV uh, prevention. Uh, and the gentleman who was giving the workshop taught for about 20 minutes, and then we took a break, and then taught for 20 minutes, and, and we took a break. And I, afterwards, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what's up with that? And he said, well, I think that's about how long uh, people can pay attention before their mind starts wandering. And so if that's how long teachers in a workshop can pay attention. What about a 14-year-old boy in that geometry class? And then the crazy thing, James, is that this 14-year-old boy then who's been told something's wrong with your brain and you can't concentrate, uh, goes home and plays video games for four or five hours at a stretch, uh, concentrating ferociously. Hmm. And so there's no question in my mind that kids, can, all, all kids can concentrate, uh, but we concentrate and focus on what we see uh, as important or interesting. Again, you made me think, David, I'm sure the US is very similar to the UK, where there's such a focus on teaching English and mathematics, subjects that can be easily assessed, that there's little room now for drama and music, sciences and the humanities. And I see that in my own daughter. She's just not as interested in those things. She does it dutifully rather than joyfully. But I really want her to do music and art and the sciences because I think that's part of a rounded education and crucial for keeping kids engaged at school. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and if you think back uh, to when you were in school or when I was in school, I remember very clearly, oh gosh, in elementary school, we'd work for a while and then there'd be recess and we'd go outside and run around and then we'd come back and we might go to art and then we'd work for a little bit, then we might go to music uh, and then we'd work for a little bit and go to lunch and then have recess again. So the sitting in the desk being on task, I think there was understanding then that that was, there's a place for that, but kids cannot do that constantly from eight until three. Uh, and it's funny, I kid with my students that the psychology, of course, here is an elective, but learning about yourself, well, that might be one of the things that a school district might want to require. Uh, but you're right. The focus is so uh, clearly on, on, on math and, and language arts here. Uh, when I was reading about um, uh, ADD, ADHD, uh, the dsm 4 uh, let me share what, what they say. Uh, quoting, signs of the disorder may be absent when the person is engaged in especially interesting activities. So here you go. You've got a diagnosis. Something's wrong with the brain. But even in the DSM, it says, well, if kids are doing something interesting, you're not going to see the symptoms. But the, the 
culture has drunk the Kool-Aid here. There was a um, day where we didn't have students and uh, teachers were asked to give presentations and I wasn't asked to do anything. Uh, and lo and behold, a couple other teachers were asked to give a presentation on ADHD. And sure enough, they started by saying, well, this is clearly a brain disorder that prevents kids from concentrating. And so it's hard to counter the culture uh, which has uh, promoted these brain disorders for just about everything. Mm. And if you look at the progression of the diagnosis itself, it starts off ADD, right? Attention deficit disorder. Kids mm. can't pay attention. And then teachers notice that, well, Johnny really is squirming a lot and can't sit still. Well, of course, rather than saying he needs a break and needs recess and needs to go outside and run around, now we're going to change the diagnosis, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And that's where we are today. But then I'm told DSM-5, the next disorder in the evolution, is going to be DMDD because we notice that, well, Johnny's also disruptive. And so now we're going to create a disorder that encompasses disruptive behavior. And I think that's, see if I can get this right, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. So it's clear to me that what we're doing is we see behavior that teachers don't like. We know that kids will pay attention if things are interesting, but instead of changing the school, we want to change the brain uh, through stimulant drugs. It would be so much easier and healthier just to change the school. But let me come back to, you mentioned the uh, uh, before that I have a couple examples where the diagnosis really led to what I consider a real disorder, learned helplessness. Mm. And so we each year do a project uh, when we're studying Skinner and uh, the behaviorist approach <clears throat> uh, where the students are asked to change somebody's behavior using Skinnerian principles. So we might want to increase our little sister's bed-making behavior or we may want to decrease dad's dessert eating behavior, increase mom's going for a walk after dinner behavior using uh, rewards, of course. And a very nice girl raises her hand and she says, well, Mr. Milky, I'm not going to be able to do the assignment. And this is really early on as I'm just introducing the, the project. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, I have ADD and I can't concentrate. And so I said, oh, no, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll make sure that we uh, I help you every step of the way, and, and it will be a positive learning experience. And uh, she really maintained that she was disabled and couldn't do it. And sure enough, I started getting emails from dad saying, my daughter's disabled, and she's unable to do this assignment. Mm -hmm. And I communicated back that I felt confident that she could do the assignment. And this was a perfectly lovely young lady, held a job. She worked at the vet where I would take my cat. And so on the weekends or in the afternoons, I would see her at work. I had no doubt that she could do the assignment and would gain something from it. Uh, and then the next thing I knew, I was getting uh, emails from the superintendent of schools. And now the ante had been upped and, and uh, the superintendent wanted to know uh, if I was uh, respecting this child's disability. And my response was, I'm, expect I'm respecting her ability. Uh, she's not disabled to the point where she can't do this. And uh, in that case, the, the school district supported me. The student did the assignment. It was a learning experience for her. And I think an experience that gave her the message that she can succeed and do these things, mm -hmm. which, of course, is what we want in school, right? We want to have kids have success experiences. Well, I'm so grateful, David, that there are teachers like you who will see what children are capable of. But I do wonder also how many educators there are out there that would really love to challenge the diagnosis and allow a child to see what they are capable of, but they might struggle because of the power and weight behind the diagnosis and perhaps the parents getting involved too. That could be quite challenging for some. Well, it is. And of course, the, the guidance apparatus of a school district uh, is complicit in all of this. The other example, I think, w which maybe illustrates this as well, when kids come into my classroom, I kind of have a rough outline on the board. I'm old enough where I still write on the board. Um, and I ask the kids, just jot down uh, in your notes sort of the outline of where we're headed today, and then and then we'll get started. And and so I noticed one student uh, didn't seem to have a notebook, and it occurred to me after seeing him for a couple of days, he wasn't doing it. So I asked him, well, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm not required to copy notes from the board. 
And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, it's in my in, uh, IEP, which here in California is an individualized education plan mm. for kids who are have disabilities. And his disability was that he couldn't pay attention. And uh, one of the accommodations was someone would take notes for him from the board, copy notes from the board. And I said, oh, no, uh, uh, you can do this. Uh, and so I communicated with the guidance office. And on this one, they said, no, uh, this is his diagnosis. This is his disability. Uh, this is the accommodation. Uh, and I was asked to find a student who would take notes on a special kind of carbon paper and then rip the underneath copy off and give to this student uh, who was so disabled that that he couldn't copy notes from the board. And so I just think, oh, gosh, I mean, what what kind of message do we send to that student about what he's capable of doing? Uh, and uh, the challenge, of course, is how do we change the system where we embrace a culture where every child can learn? Uh, and we recognize disabilities, of course, uh, but things like ADHD, where there's no there's no objective test for it. You know, when I share that with kids, they're surprised and also surprised when we share that there are no objective tests for any mental illness, mm. uh, that these diagnoses are all made subjectively. And Dr. A may say, wow, you're, you can't pay attention in geometry. Well, you have ADHD. And Dr. B might say, I didn't pay attention in geometry either. Uh, you're perfectly normal. And then to to then compound the message that you're defective and something's wrong with you uh, by giving stimulant drugs. Well, Peter Bregan calls that child abuse, and I really agree with him. I think if adults choose to use psychiatric substances, that's fine, but uh, kids really don't reach a point uh, where they can make a, a con uh, informed consent uh, for that kind of treatment. It is deeply concerning, isn't it? Not least because we know so little about the fully developed brain and mind, let alone the developing brain. And I wanted to ask, David, what kind of experiences you've had, perhaps interacting with students who you may know or may suspect are on stimulant drugs, because tackling the diagnosis is problematic already, but when we compound that by adding mood and behaviour-altering drugs on top... I just wondered what your experiences have shown you about the medicating of so many children. Yeah, that's been the real challenge for me uh, because I think as a teacher, you have to foster an environment where all points of view are welcome uh, and all choices uh, are respected. I've got a big poster uh, on the other side of my room that says, think for yourself, the teacher may be wrong. And so the even though it's clear to my students that I'm concerned about uh, diagnoses and drugs and am clearly in favor of drug-free approaches to dealing with life, I really want to be sensitive to the fact that their families have made uh, different choices for them. Mm -hmm. A year ago, I actually had two students uh, go to the school administration and say that they were uncomfortable in the class because it was so one-sided in pointing out the research that suggests that these drugs are not safe and not effective. Mm -hmm. And so I met with each student and an administrator separately. And I tried to, well, first I apologize because I, I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable in my class. But by the same token, I think we can't just pretend uh, that these drugs are safe uh, and effective. And I think uh, I'm morally bound to teach what the research tells us, that if you're on antidepressant drugs as a teenager, you're at risk for suicide, mm -hmm. right? Or if the psychiatrist then adds an antipsychotic drug to your prescription list, well, then you're at risk for tardive dyskinesia, tics that may become permanent, and that if you're taking stimulant drugs, you are more at risk for becoming addicted to stimulant drugs as an adult. I think you have to teach what the research tells us, uh, but I know that in doing so, 
kids on drugs are put in a difficult situation. And really, this is an ongoing challenge for me to try to figure out how to do it because the two kids who then eventually dropped the class, one didn't seem to hold a grudge against me. He just said, look, I'm going to be more comfortable taking something else. And I see him around school now and we're friendly and, and, and that one didn't end badly. But the other situation, the girl was really openly hostile to me. Uh, that uh, to be critical of drugs for emotional issues, uh, she really took it really kind of as a personal attack. And so I've had some interesting conversations with the, uh, my administrators here, and, and the suggestion that I have adopted really is to be very upfront with the kids and say, look, I really want to follow what the research tells us. And it's telling us that people do better in the long run uh, with psychotherapy than they do with drugs. And what we're going to do in the class is we're going to examine uh, what we're doing when we're drugging people. And then once we finished that part of the class and raised ish questions about safety and effectiveness, then we're going to study psychology. <laughs> we're going to start with Freud and Jung and Erickson and move on through, uh, really, James, as my attempt to resurrect psychology and psychotherapy in the minds of these kids to counter the message that the drug companies have succeeded in sending to them, that mental illness uh, has something to do with the brain. Yeah, that message for a child, particularly perhaps when reinforced by parents, either overtly or covertly, parents saying you're different, you do need the drugs, there is something different about your brain, no matter how gently or carefully that message is given, as you said so perfectly earlier, it's going to result in learned helplessness. That's right. That's right. And I think what, what helps us in this conversation is that there's a lot of research uh, to support uh, choosing psychotherapy uh, over uh, drugs. I mean, one of the most powerful uh, things that I share in class, we see the 60 Minutes segment where Irving Kirsch talks about uh, a placebo effect. And essentially, uh, his meta-analysis indicates that antidepressant drugs, but they're no more effective than placebo. And that if people respond positively to an antidepressant drug, it's not because of the drug, but it's because the expectation that it will work. And I think that's really hard to, hard to refute, isn't it, that evidence? And then, you know, my students will often then say, well, okay, maybe the walking wounded don't need uh, to be on drugs. Uh, but people who are psychotic, they certainly need uh, drugs. And then there again, we have research, the World Health Organization report. Uh, and this was stunning to me that if you're hearing voices or disconnecting from this reality, uh, you know, exhibiting symptoms that we refer to as schizophrenia, mm -hmm. your outcomes are better in Nigeria or Cameroon or Guatemala uh, than here in America or in the UK where you are, because in those underdeveloped countries, uh, the treatment is uh, love and support. We've lost David Melky, but we're going to bring him back. We're going to surround him with family. We're going to surround him with love. Uh, and, and he's going to come back to us in Nigeria or Cameroon, right? Uh, Guatemala and so on. But in, in here, uh, if I start hearing voices and, and checking out of this reality and, and tuning into another one, well, I'm going to be given antipsychotic drugs. And so the, to actually have research that underlines the power of love and support uh, over shock and drugs. I think, I think uh, that's great. Uh, and it gives us uh, really ammunition in this to counter what the, what the drug companies have been so successful in communicating to our culture. Absolutely, you're right, David. That supporting science and evidence is so important to help people understand what we really do and don't know about helping people who may be struggling. And I just wondered, David, I heard from Dr. Bregan that what gives him hope is over the last 10 to 20 years, how many more people he's heard openly questioning how we respond to psychological or emotional distress. And I just wondered if that echoed your own experience, because clearly there are more students diagnosed and medicated, but also are there more students who are open to questioning our whole approach to mental health? Yes, I think that, I think that is exactly true. Um, and uh, just as Peter Bregan was 
30 years ago, this lone voice in the wilderness, right? Uh, now there's an entire subculture uh, of which you, you and I are a part of uh, examining what are we doing in terms of helping people, what works, what doesn't work, and, and, and can we question uh, the use of uh, uh, drugs uh, as opposed to psychotherapy? And, and in my own experience here, um, I'm going to say 10 or 15 years ago, uh, students really pushed back uh, as if I was uh, not recognizing the advances of science and medicine, uh, that everyone knows that uh, uh, mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance, and that I was crazy to think that love and understanding and support and human relationships uh, were the key to recovery. Uh, and now I don't have that degree of pushback. As a matter of fact, my group this year some may be harboring some some doubts that that I'm ignoring science and and medicine, but really they're more open to questioning uh, how safe and effective are these drugs, what research supports them, uh, and how effective is psychotherapy uh, compared to uh, the use of drugs and shock. And so I would say uh, I would agree with Peter Bregan that the tide is turning. So far this year, for example, we, we've sort of uh, followed the beginning of Mad in America, Robert Whitaker's book, uh, and shared the early things that we did uh, to treat mental illness. You know, the shots of horse blood and the spinning and the bleeding and the bath of surprise and, and then moving forward into uh, metrazole injections, you know, uh, stimulating a violent seizure and putting people in an insulin coma. And then we watch a wonderful documentary called The Lobotomist about Walter Freeman. Uh, Robert Whitaker's interviewed a number of times uh, in that documentary. And uh, my students just kind of shake their heads that, you know, we could be so blind. And then we move into where we are now and we just draw the line that, well, Thorazine was marketed as the chemical lobotomy and how different are the drugs that we use now uh, from Thorazine. And so they see, I think, pretty clearly that where we are now is just the latest chapter in that long progression of error uh, as we search for some sort of magic bullet uh, to solve all of our challenges in life. And I think my kids understand intuitively that there are ups and downs in life uh, and that the search for a magic bullet really is misguided. Uh, a shot of horse blood is not going to make up for abusive parents and neither is Abilify, right? Mm. Uh, and so we're coming to the towards the end of this section of the class. And kids are looking forward to, well, if this sort of biological approach is misguided and harmful and certainly not effective, what do we do? And so then hopefully they will, I think they are, uh, eager to learn about Freud, mm -hmm. about uh, how childhood lives on into adulthood, right? All of the richness of psychology that, that I, we will then explore uh, as really a drug-free alternative uh, to what the culture is suggesting now. I find that incredibly heartening, that we can utilize the power of an open mind. That's worth a great deal, isn't it? It is, and I think that the <clears throat> one of the ways we counter the message from the drug companies and from psychiatry is, you know, first of all, with the research as, uh, that I mentioned before, but also really promoting psychotherapy. How the idea of a drug-free solution got lost is really uh, uh, surprising to me. And what we, what I try to share with my students is that one of the differences between uh, taking drugs and psychotherapy is that the drugs may address the symptom, uh, but psychotherapy is interested in addressing what's causing those symptoms. And I, I give a couple examples from my own life. I share that from time to time I suffer from, uh, from uh, insomnia. And obviously I'm anxious about something, right? It's keeping me up at night. And I uh, share with the students, well, if I take a sleeping pill, I go to sleep, don't I? Uh, but we've only addressed the symptom, right? We've not really gotten into what am I worried about? 
uh, what's keeping me up at night. Uh, and the pill addresses the symptom, but doesn't address the causes. And then to share another example, there was a period of time when uh, from time to time I would experience a panic attack. My heart would beat quickly. I, I wouldn't really know why this was happening. And I shared that with my doctor, and immediately he took out the pen and prescription pad and wrote me out a prescription for Xanax. And so I share with the students, well, I could take Xanax every time I'm experiencing a panic attack, but really it's just treating the symptom, isn't it? Uh, it's not uh, addressing uh, the cause. And, and the beauty of psychotherapy is that we go beyond symptoms and, and, and into the causes. And then, and then I think the other thing that uh, I try to emphasize to my kids uh, is, well, what's the basis of psychotherapy? It's human connection, right? It's human connection. It's based on a relationship uh, that you develop with someone who is there for you. Uh, and how much richer is that than a prescription for Paxil, right? Uh, and I share with my students uh, my own experiences with psychotherapy. I had a period of time uh, where I was going through a divorce and I have children and I needed support. Uh, and I found my counselor to be extremely helpful uh, as I worked through that difficult period. And then one day I showed up for my appointment and she wasn't there. And I think at first I thought, well, she's late. And then I realized after about 10 minutes, we must have miscommunicated about the time of the appointment. Uh, but I stayed in the waiting room almost for the entire hour because just being in the space right, where I had been supported was helpful to me. And so I think when you teach students that psychotherapy is about human beings helping human beings, or as Peter Bregan says, people need people, not pills, right, uh, that it's a very rich opportunity for growth and support. And I would add really um, empowering if I go to a doctor and he says, well, you know, there's something wrong with your brain and you're going to need to take this drug, the message is uh, you can't beat this. This is something that's beyond your control. Uh, and here's the medicine uh, that will help you. Uh, to me, that's a profoundly disempowering message about a, being a human being in uh, crisis or distress. Mm. Uh, but psychotherapy, the message is just the opposite, isn't it? Uh, you can overcome this uh, with my help, and you're the captain of your own ship, and uh, you'll sail through these stormy waters, right? And so I think the uh, as we try to educate people about the dangers uh, of drugs, I think at the same time we need to celebrate and promote of the beauty of uh, psychotherapy uh, as really a very empowering and drug-free human response to the challenges that we all encounter in life. That message is so important, isn't it? Because I myself have experienced times where I felt that taking a tablet is like admitting that I don't think I have the resilience or the skills to cope with whatever situation I'm in. Whereas what strikes me about psychotherapy is that what it's doing is bringing out your inherent resilience and saying, we can manage this together. Uh, yes, that's certainly right. It reminds me of something that Peter Bregan said. Uh, uh, we said, read the Old Testament. Uh, this is the human condition. Uh, challenges, disappointments, uh, betrayals, illness, death. I mean, these, uh, this is what it's like to be a human being. And sometimes we're overwhelmed by, you know, the, what life throws at us. But yes, the reaching for the drug, I think, is an admission uh, that I can't, I can't handle this. And, and I think, of course, reaching for uh, a therapist also says, I can't really do this by myself, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, why not choose the human connection, right? Uh, over the pharmaceutical connection. And I kid my, I kid my students. I say, you know, uh, I hope to live long enough to where the uh, expression that we hear all the time is not ask your doctor if Abilify is right for you, but the expression we hear now would be ask your doctor if counseling is right for you. I mean, wouldn't that be 
wouldn't that be a great step forward? Those interactions and connections are so important, aren't they? And the drug culture kind of robs us of a lot of that. We don't learn and progress in our knowledge of how to support people because the drugs are masking so much. Well, that, that's really true. And, you know, one of the things when we haven't gotten there yet this semester, but when we get into studying Freud and Erickson and Jung, what uh, we underline for the students is that for all of those guys, <clears throat> they saw conflict as an opportunity to grow, right? Uh, without conflict, without challenges, we don't grow. And so uh, we kid at that point in the semester when I say, oh, you're going through a hard time? Good, opportunity to grow, you know? Uh, and we make light of it, but, but the reality is, is uh, that is how we grow. I remember as a, as a high school student myself, I had this charmed life, right? I had this loving family and everybody was healthy and we were middle class and went on vacations and, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to have been uh, Dave Melky? Um, but I knew students uh, that I was in school with whose lives had been much harder than mine. And, and in some ways, it was clear to me that they were much more mature than I was. And only later did I realize, well, they've had to cope with this and with that and with this and with that things, challenges that I had not faced. And so I think this is an important thing to communicate uh, to students is that, number one, well, life is sometimes hard. Of course, that's the human condition. Uh, but that without a challenge, uh, we don't grow. Uh, and that if we can see challenges as opportunities to embrace and overcome uh, rather than suppress uh, with drugs, well, that would be that would be the step that we should take. It's funny. I'm in my classroom now, and I'm just looking at the around the room, and I've got a poster up that says "Feelings should be understood, not suppressed." And then it says Peter Bregan underneath it. And I think that's really the uh, that's really a message I think that that does resonate uh, with my students. Absolutely, David. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with me. It was such an interesting discussion, and I'm thrilled that we can get you on the podcast. I think the one thing I would add is just the uh, how appreciative I am uh, of the work that you're doing and the work that Mad in America is doing, uh, and that Peter Bregan is doing, and and this entire group of people who are sincerely concerned about mental health. I just, I just uh, want to express my appreciation for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you again for the opportunity to have a small part in it. Well, David, I want to echo that right back because educators like yourself, the future is almost literally in your hands. Educators can do so much good in saying, think for yourself, don't necessarily believe things that aren't supported by science and evidence. Look at the counter positions, look at a range of information and sources. For you to be educating your students to be open-minded is so valuable, and I think we should recognize the role educators play in this, so thank you. Well, it's, it's certainly been my pleasure having this conversation with you, and uh, you know, continue to keep it up, keep up the good work. I'm so grateful to David for taking the time to talk with me for the podcast. Madden America News and Updates. On Madden America this week, Peter Simons reports on research in Finland led by British ADHD expert Kapil Sayal. Researchers have verified that the youngest children in a class are more likely to receive an ADHD diagnosis than their peers. The study, published in The Lancet Psychiatry, found that children born between September and December, the youngest in the Finnish school system, were 64% more likely to be given a diagnosis of ADHD than their older peers in the same class who were born between January and April. Part of the controversy surrounding the diagnosis of ADHD is that studies have consistently shown that the youngest children in a class are up to twice as likely to receive a diagnosis and to be prescribed stimulant medications. Researchers theorize that this is due to their developmental immaturity relative to their peers in the same class, who may be almost a year older. Previous researchers have referred to this as evidence of medically inappropriate ADHD diagnosis and treatment in school-age children. According to Sayal, teachers and parents might interpret the behavior of younger and older children within the same class differently because they might not take relative age into account. 
This situation could result in a referral and diagnostic bias, meaning that relatively young children within the class are more likely to be clinically referred and subsequently diagnosed with ADHD, possibly incorrectly. Most of the previously mentioned studies were conducted in countries which have generally high rates of ADHD diagnosis. The authors of the current study wanted to examine whether these results would hold true in countries with lower diagnosis rates, such as their home country of Finland. Their results demonstrate that even in countries where ADHD diagnosis is less frequent, it is still given to the youngest children in the classroom. Sile notes that the ADHD diagnosis is based on comparing children to others in their class. After all, findings from a recent study indicate that parent ratings of relative immaturity compared with peers are associated with ADHD symptoms. Additionally, the youngest children in a classroom consistently experience academic difficulties, most likely because they are a year less experienced and their brains are a year less developed than their peers. That is, in recent years, the youngest children are making up an increased percentage of those diagnosed with ADHD in any given class. Children under the age of 10 were far more likely to be diagnosed in this manner. According to Daryl Efron, who wrote a commentary on the article, also published in The Lancet Psychiatry, if behaviour congruent with relatively young age within the school year is being systematically misclassified as developmental immaturity, many incorrect diagnoses of ADHD could be made, and children might be treated unnecessarily with medication. Sial's study included all singleton live births between 1991 and 2004 in Finland, a total of 870,695. The data on ADHD diagnosis came from Finnish hospital discharge registers, which includes all ADHD diagnoses because Finland has a universal healthcare system in which children's medical needs are attended to free of charge. The researchers also examined whether the effect could reflect the presence of other diagnoses such as conduct disorder and learning or developmental disorder. The presence of these diagnoses did not affect the results. Thus, the researchers ruled out the possibility that the effect of relative age was due to these other diagnoses. According to Sial, teachers, parents and clinicians should take relative age into account when considering the possibility of ADHD in a child or encountering a child with a pre-existing diagnosis. The researchers add that education systems should reflect this information too. From the perspective of education policy, there should be greater flexibility in school starting dates for children who are judged less mature compared with their peers within the same school year. To read more on this and other articles too, visit maddenamerica.com. So, thank you so much for listening today. Please tell your friends and family about the podcast. And if you're listening in iTunes, please leave us a review as we want to get more people listening too. So, until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.